0: Hi, and welcome back to TPI's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Thursday, June 7, 2018, and I'm TPI research fellow Sarah O. Oh. Today, we're excited to talk with two of the most knowledgeable journalists covering telecom policy, Jonathan Make and David Kaupp from Communications Daily. Jonathan is the editor of Communications Daily, and in his spare time is president of the Society of Professional Journalists, DC Pro Chapter. He has covered media business and policy for most of his journalism career. He blogs at medium.com at MakeJDM and tweets at MakeJDM. David Cout has been senior editor reporter at Communications Daily since May of 2015. Before that, he was a communications policy analyst at Leg Mason and Stifle Nicholas from 2001 to 2014. I'm a telecom media beat reporter at BNA Daily Report for executives from 96 to 2001. I am joined today by Scott Walston, TPI Senior Fellow and President, who will start off our conversation on the never-ending story, net neutrality, and the related continuing resolution in Congress, and whether Congress will ever get to bipartisan legislation. Scott, you want to start us off?
1: Sure. Thanks, Sarah. And thanks, David and Jonathan, for joining us today. really happy that you could come. So actually, I want to use net neutrality to jump off to ask a different question. So when we looked at the millions of comments that came in on net neutrality, we compared them to the 2010, we found using sort of basic textual analysis that the median comment was fairly polite, sane comment, whether it was pro or con, but that there was a much bigger spread. The tails got bigger in 2015. There were a lot more kind of crazy comments, uh, very passionate comments on both sides. Do you think that is typical of the way telecom debates have become now? Does it say something about how we approach telecom policy now, or, or is net neutrality really just so different that it's it, you can't generalize
2: from it? I think it's more that. I think net neutrality is in its own world. The vast majority of telecom debates are still way under the radar. Mm -hmm. And we got a thing on the agenda for today at the FCC that affects consumers. And I just met a consumer in my neighborhood who was very concerned about related issues. She has no clue what's going on. But net neutrality, it's gotten into the popular consciousness. You got John Comedian Oliver doing his thing. That had something to do with it. I also just think the fact that the FCC had been trying to kind of thread the needle before under Martin, under Jenikowski, and even Wheeler at the beginning, and then You know, he got pressed by President Obama and the left to go for the Title II. So that kind of pushed things more to the extremes. I remember Michael Powell before that had warned, this is going to be World War III if you do that. So I think that neutrality really is in its own boat. Clearly, things have become generally more partisan because of the general political environment we're living in. But I think that neutrality really is the kind of poster child for that partisanship. Since this is a podcast, I'll say
3: I'm Jonathan, and I agree with my colleague Dave 100%, and I think it's a great question, Scott. You know, reading through a recent Freedom of Information Act request related to the FCC's computer system problems during this very period started when John Oliver ran a full segment of his show devoted to net neutrality. Most of the FOIA information was about the FCC dealing with reporters during this time, and was it a distributed denial of service attack, or was it the fact that the FCC systems were unable to handle it? But the fact that that conversation was even being held, and even that too reached into the popular consciousness a bit. And not only thanks to Oliver, I think that signals the high profile of this issue. I've had multiple people observe just out in the out in the country and just in, in other spaces other than telecom policy that, you know, they're aware, more people are aware the the name of this FCC chairman than most of the others. And I also want to emphasize that, yes, a number of other FCC chairmen, going back to Powell and Martin, did try to thread the needle in ways that you know were consistent with their political leanings. But we have seen this current FCC chairman in the past one go to, not extremes, but go to different ends of the kind of policy spectrum when it comes to net neutrality. So maybe it's no surprise that in this highly, highly partisan environment that we're in generally in Washington, which also has affected telecom, it's just amped everything up and amped up the interest. There've been protests, some of which we've covered around the country, not just in Washington about net neutrality. I don't know if that's been a thing before as much as as it was. And, you know, maybe we'll get into it. There's even a protest that we're covering today, unrelated to net neutrality, but related to a broadcast deal that also has, I think, risen a little bit in popular consciousness, also probably thanks to things like the John Oliver show. Is that
1: the Sinclair Tribune merger? There's a a protest against.
3: There's a a
2: protest at their annual meeting
3: right now. The
2: Mm -hmm. annual meeting just started. Just as one symptom, when I think back to the 2010 debate, there were a lot of Democrats on the Hill who pushed back against Jenikowski Mm -hmm. when he pushed for Title II. I think it was up to 70 of them wrote a letter Mm -hmm. saying, don't do this. Those Democrats are largely gone. They were defeated. Those were blue dog type Democrats. They were defeated in the 2010 election. Then you had redistricting and census and all of that. And you just have a much more polarized, you know, House of Representatives and a country as a whole, too. So and on, on legislation
3: which I think was the kind of end of your question. You know, I I am not an expert on the legislative sphere, although our publication and some of our reporters cover it very closely. It's unclear what it will take politically to get some sort of compromise, you know, a grand bargain. It would almost potentially be part of the new Telecommunications Act, which would make it even more complicated on net neutrality on Capitol Hill. But it is very notable how many players in the industry and Dave can answer this better, whether they're all or any of you actually could, whether they're on all sides of the debate or whether it's mainly only ISPs. But I do seem to recall that so many industry players are calling for legislation. And these seem to be, you know, fide calls. We're not going to have anything, of course, this session, but next session will be very interesting to about the political makeup of both chambers. So I do think that's a possibility. And I also and maybe one of you guys could kind of address your thoughts on this, whether it's a genuine you know, proposition being put forward by industry. I want to say, including even at TPI's most recent conference in Aspen, that everyone's saying stop the regulatory ping pong. I do think that there is some genuine sentiment by the major players for that. And I think one of the big questions is now that there's genuine sentiment on the ISP side, what about the platforms and do they somehow get roped into this. And the revelations that we see, it's amazing almost daily about you know privacy issues and breaches and all sorts of things that when you think about them are quite important and very much in the popular discourse, not to mention the political discourse, perhaps the more attention you see on, oh, we have to regulate platforms. It's not just about ISPs. That too, maybe could possibly be part of a grand bargain. I mean, I have no idea, but It seems like a lot of oxygen after the elections, after the new Congress gets seated telecom policy could
2: potentially revolve around these two interrelated issues. And I don't think they're necessarily opposed to legislation. They just obviously don't want to be regulated. So, I mean, they've actually talked about net neutrality. The Internet Association said we're okay with doing legislation. They're not. Just adamantly opposed to that. They're obviously concerned about then them getting roped in on all sorts of other stuff beyond just what you know we've considered ISP net neutrality. I think the bigger problem right now is the Democrats. Basically, before the election, it's like they got an issue, you know, and why negotiate from a position of weakness? They're going to pick up seats even if they don't take the House and the Senate. So you know, and maybe they do take the House. All of a sudden, they have a lot more.
1: So average. I mean, one of the ways that, that I look at it with net neutrality is that it's part of a debate that has been going on ever since there have been networks that have high fixed costs, which is how do you price access to it? Yeah. And this is sort of what we're calling that debate now. And the reason to support legislation is just because it's harder to change legislation than it is to change regulation. And you get some sort of stability in it for a while. I, mean, I think the, the right answer to this kind of question changes as technologies change and so on. But, you know, it's also the case that industry and and any other group, they want, they still, they want whatever's gonna be in their best interest, naturally. And so people want legislation when people they agree with control Congress and not when they don't. So now there's something relevant in potential continuing resolution. Does that not count as legislation? Not
2: really. I mean-
1: I mean, what can it think? Because it's just vetoing
2: what the FCC did. So you're still in the ping pong type situation. It's not like a new framework where people kind of, okay, this is the framework going forward. It's just saying, no, FCC, what you just did rolling back net neutrality Title II, we're going to get rid of that. So I don't, I mean, yes, so technically it is. Playing, playing the courts. Yeah, they're basically vetoing yeah. what the FCC's done. So yes, technically it is legislation, but, yeah, you know, I don't think people see that as the ultimate solution. It's more like from a democratic perspective, it would be, okay, this, this strengthens things for now.
3: Can we get to what Senator Nelson posited now a couple of years ago, which is a new title of the Telecommunications Act, Title X, that doesn't exist. It was a hypothetical. Can we get to what has come up a lot more recently also by Republicans, albeit in different flavors and in both chambers, I believe, about some net neutrality legislation that, and here's the big question, what happens with the so-called fast lanes or specialized services? Because beyond that, right there is, as far as I can tell, huge agreement among lots of different stakeholders on what the rules of the road should be, much of which goes back to, I think, the Powell FCC. It's a couple principles, five or so principles for net neutrality that for the most part, no player has talked about violating. And even when some of these companies are doing things around the edges, mostly that it has it would not have impinged on those principles, which got this whole thing started. And you know, I do think just like when people talk about Lifeline, very different telecommunications policy, and they say, "Well, you know, a Republican did start it." I guess the Reagan administration. When people do talk about you know net neutrality, I mean, I think one of the first. FCC actions was by one Republican, and then the next Republican went after Comcast, which started the very first court case. We've had, what, three court cases since? Am I right? Three rulings by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals?
2: Well, there were two on one, but yes, we've essentially gone through three rounds. And
0: And another one coming, actually. There is one pending, right? For net neutrality.
2: Yeah, Yeah, well, the Supreme Court... Uh, no, no. Ninth it's Circuit. Well, yeah, but that, that's just barely getting going. Yes. Pending, because it's probably got... Well, the F, the FT... Sorry, at t
3: huge case, which there is, yeah. right, so little popular understanding of it. And Dave and a couple other people at Communications Daily have covered it. One of our reporters went out to the oral argument last year. Well, the thing is, ATT t settled that case, or said they, they... I don't think they formally settled it. But AT&T settled that case, which has to do with FTC authority, and FTC authority is very important right now as we have moved from title, I get the t- as title we move two. from a common carrier back to an information. Thank you. To well, title so actually,
1: why don't you, let's back up a little bit, sure. because you just said it's sort of underappreciated in the sense of uh, how much it matters. So maybe somebody should explain a little bit about the case and what it is and why it matters.
0: Sure. Well, me, I can start us please. off and then... So the at t okay. mobility case at the Ninth Circuit I think AT&T Mobility was arguing that the FTC does not have authority over their common carrier activities, and they were making the claim that their common carrier status, oddly under Title II from the FCC affords them um, protection from FTC jurisdiction on unfair practices. It so, was one little wrinkle. Yes, okay. What, what AT&T <laughs> was
2: arguing was, at and T still a common carrier for phone, traditional phone services. What they were arguing was that the FTC doesn't have jurisdiction, and there's the, the Section 5 exemption for common carriers, that the FTC doesn't have jurisdiction over their non-common carrier activities. And if broadband was no longer common carrier under the FCC's Title I approach, then they were arguing FTC can't even look at that because the FTC couldn't look at it as long as it was Title II common carrier. But even when it was taken out of common carrier in Title II and put it in Title I, what AT&T wanted to argue is, well, you still can't touch it because it's an, it's, it's, you, can't, you can't regulate our, our, our non-common carrier activities. So
3: And this is all about this is the, the an important thing here is this is all about, I believe, data throttling. Yeah. I believe of the very, very highest users, which has been, I won't say a huge issue, but it has been one of the issues animating the net neutrality and other debates, bandwidth caps, and right. not just for this is for wireless, this is for AT&T yeah. mobility customers, but also for wireline customers. We mm-hmm. tend to forget about them with all the focus on incentive, you know, we're a block away from the FCC, actually on the same block as the FCC. Yes, the incentive auction that the FCC just included, we have another auction, I think that will start later this year. All of this is to, you know, repurpose Spectrum for wireless broadband, but there's also a huge number of people who are paying the Comcast's and Charters and Frontiers and, and other companies of the world for wireline service. So, you know, it, the question was, Did I believe, did at and properly notify its customers and adhere to its terms of service, which is a hook that the FTC has over all industries, not just ours, when it throttled, you know, 1% or a very small portion of its customers. But yeah, that, that case was decided right by the panel. Of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, out in San Francisco, in favor of the FTC, and then I believe
2: the entire court—am I right? No, so no they reversed not... it reversed. The, pan, the panel <laughs> sided with him. The panel sided with AT and T, which threw in oh, doubt sorry. the FTC's you're jurisdiction, right. yeah. and then the, the the three judge panel, and then the en banc broader court sided yeah. with the FTC unanimously. It was like ten or eleven to nothing. And now what's happened is AT&T has said, we're not going to appeal to the Supreme Court. They're still working on settling the underlying data throttling dispute with the FTC. But they basically threw the FTC a bone, and said, okay, we're not going to. I mean, I think they were smart. They were realizing, look, the FTC is going to be out there at least, you know, on some of your stuff. So, you know, you don't want to pick this fight with them because they're going to be overseeing. This is the framework that your chairman of the FCC has developed. So why are you going to fight them on this? And so where,
1: where does this leave what I guess the FTC would consider acceptable behavior?
2: Well, we'll have to see. I mean, that's so, gonna, <laughs> that's. Okay. I mean, you're getting into the the nuts and bolts and details. Oh. Deceptive and unfair. You know, we'll find out. I mean, it's not very clear. They haven't had, you know, there hadn't really hadn't been any big cases. I don't think. Right. Obviously, for the last two years since they did the Title II, three years, Title II, and then before that, it hadn't really bubbled up much. There, this was still largely seen as it's a, a, an it's FTC a huge matter. question. So, but they are relying very heavily on the FTC. So,
1: so, so as it's true with the entire history of common carrier type regulation, we're trying to decide what
2: reasonable means. Yeah. I mean, well, in this case, it won't be what's reasonable. It's what's unfair and deceptive. Right.
0: And if but I remember I the fact pattern correctly, it was these grandfathered unlimited plans mm-hmm. that were unlimited yeah. wireless on mm-hmm. like 3G. And then AT&T was upgrading to LTE and like the 1% of people with, unlimited plan on their old phone were then transferred to new plans, grandfathered in with their unlimited before, and then AT&T kind of limited their unlimited plans without telling them.
3: Yeah, they throttled you, which many people, you know, agreed to quite willingly. Of course, there's no violation. You know, you get a certain number of gigabits. And once you see that, you'll be throttled. And they did that without Telling people it's my, and it, it, you know, the, the fact is, it may have been even less than 1%. I'm sorry, we're not that familiar with the case. It, they may even say, oh, it was, you know, 10 or 20,000 customers that can be a tiny number of customers that can suck up a lot of the capacity. So we're worried about, in this case, treating the 1% unfairly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we'll flip the script
1: there. Right. By the way, yeah, I just want to point out, you can tell that in addition to having a PhD, Sarah has a JD. and You can tell that because she said fact pattern.
3: <laughs> I like oh, that. Yeah, I didn't say know that. that. I <laughs> didn't know that you were <laughs> yeah. more. That's great. More than more the than continent's. One other thing I just want to throw out there, because we are at a economist think tank, and you guys do a number of white papers on this, is some of the kind of industry details or the impact on, you know, spending by major telecommunications companies, whether there is, you know, common carrier, what some would call utility regulation of broadband service. Or whether there is, you know, much lighter touch uh, regulation, traditional regulation of uh, broadband service, which is the regime we are, you know, in a couple days, I guess, under again. How does that impact spending? And we have seen, I mean, we read most of the different studies that come out from, you know, think tanks and groups on all sides of this debate, and it's very hard to have a takeaway from them. So just be, I just want to bring it back to mid for to, act to the to the economics and seems like we don't really know. I think that's right. I mean,
1: companies set their investment plans pretty far in advance and their sort of base level of investment isn't gonna change a lot. I mean, what we care about always is, you know, what's on the edges, on the, on the margins. And so there's so many things going on that it's it's hard to tell. I mean, the big changes were with at and and then that all depends on how you allocate their costs across Mexico and DirecTV yep. and so on.
2: And so Spectrum. It's, yeah, I mean, it's exactly. they had huge Spectrum outlays there. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah no, exactly. I think these things take a long time to manifest, and and they, they can also affect investment in ways other than just up or down. It, it can change what you invest into. Oh, yeah.
2: So, my opinion on this whole net neutrality into ping pong. I think it's mm-hmm. not as bad on either side. I think both sides tend to exaggerate how bad it is, and we kind of have something more closer in the middle somewhere. But it, you know, if you got rid of all net neutrality regulation companies still do have some incentive to treat their consumers well, you know. And if you have Title II regulation, you know, this has been around for decades. They'd figure out how to deal with it and it wouldn't be as bad. So, you know, both sides use it to their maximum advantage.
1: The, the stock market, stock price, stock price studies bear out what you're saying. I mean, it's a little dangerous to rely on what we call event studies because, Mm -hmm. as we say, so little data and so much noise. But Bob Crandall did a paper on uh, net neutrality, sort of identified every place where there was what you might consider to be a surprise announcement about net neutrality one way or another. And you would expect, you know, if if net neutrality was looking less likely that the ISPs would benefit and if it looks more likely the companies that are in favor of net neutrality would benefit vice versa. Nothing. (laughs) Found nothing.
2: I remember, so I remember many, like you said, yeah. there's so many other variables. There's
1: so many other variables, or and there's look. time <laughs> lags and everything,
2: right. and it but, gets baked in. And you
1: know, but the other possibility is that, like you said, it just doesn't matter that much.
2: Well, I think there's some <laughs> truth to <laughs> that I used to work at Leg Mason and Steve Nicholas, <laughs> and, and <laughs> investors, you know, we're interested in this up to a point. But you mm-hmm. know, when you go through all these rounds, at some point, they get numb to it, yeah. and they just say, Well, tell me when something really happens, mm-hmm. basically.
0: Maybe Comedy Central stock.
2: <laughs> That's
3: right. <laughs> that is so true, right? now, Time Order, which actually gets into some of the, we have some huge pending telecommunications. Deals. Yeah, I don't know if yeah. we want to. Should
0: we talk about some of those mergers? Whatever they want to talk
3: about, it's their podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's
1: let's talk about you those Oh my. Okay. All right. So let's say there are. I think there are, there are three mergers or pending mergers that are all interesting for different reasons. One is Sinclair Tribune, which for the market. Eh, it doesn't matter because, you know, they're not really worth anything compared. The market value of Facebook changes by multiples of what these two companies are worth, Mm -hmm. but still a big deal for other reasons. Then there's AT&T Time Warner, and that, you know, it it matters because it matters to these companies, and they're both big companies, and it's a vertical merger, and if Justice Department were able to block it, that'd be kind of a big deal. And then there's this other one where Disney is trying to buy 21st Century Fox. Comcast would prefer that they buy 21st Century Fox. Comcast is also trying to buy Sky and Murdoch has some interest in Sky and the European and the British regulators said that they, so at this point, I'm not sure who's trying to buy what and um, what the regulators think who should own. Uh, it, it's very confusing.
0: And T-Mobile Sprint.
1: <laughs> oh, and T-Mobile Sprint, right, of course. I mean, so with all of that, what, what are you guys going to focus on? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, whatever comes to fruition, I mean, obviously T-Mobile Sprint's coming at us. AT&T Time Warner? We should find out next week with we the judge. I mean, that's a very key pivotal moment. And I think the betting generally is they're not going to just say, DOJ, you're right. So we don't know, but I would say the odds probably favor AT&T on that one. But could he, you know, could the judge say, well, you know, negotiate some conditions or something? DOJ doesn't want to do behavioral conditions. They've been there, you know, tried that with Comcast, NBCU didn't work out that well. So, I mean, we just have to wait and see what the judge says. And that's coming up next week. T Mobile Sprint, you know, at best it seems 50 50. A lot of analysts think it's a little less than 50 50 because basically, you know, DOJ and the FCC warned them off back four years ago. And they had particular reasons back then because you were heading into auctions, they wanted. You know these guys to be competitive, but I think there's probably among the career people, there's probably still resistance because they say, we got great competition and you know, we blocked AT&T, T-Mobile and look what happened. T-Mobile became a stronger competitor and everything's great. So why do we give that up? I think probably the way to look at it from my perspective is, you know, they've got to be convinced, you know, by the companies that there really is, you know, all these you know they're, they they're going to have enough competition. You're going and they're going to create new competition to fixed services somehow through 5G and all that. So I would put that as like a little less than 50, and then on all that other stuff on Comcast and uh, who is the other one that's I forget. Disney
1: uh, oh, it's Twitter 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 Twitter. Disney. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, let's see who actually wins that. I mean, right. I, you get into that type of debate where who's going to buy who. You get into personalities and price. Price is obviously huge. Mm-hmm. We go, who's going to pay what? And people disagree on price. And so we, let's see what emerges from that one. Sinclair Tribune, I guess, I don't know, I'll leave to Jonathan. I mean, I, I find all these transactions or potential
3: transactions fascinating on their face. We also have what happens to you know the future of CBS and Viacom. That's probably That's right. less, I think, contested in the policy arena, highly, highly, highly contested in the business arena. And I agree with Dave. Often there are corporate governance issues and pricing issues, and also regulatory certainty issues. One reason that Comcast, I believe, so far has not been successful in getting a deal to acquire, you know, much of 21st Century Fox and some of or all of its European assets, which includes Sky, which is possibly the biggest satellite TV provider in Europe, is the perceived regulatory issues and. You know, in the eyes of some, how the U.S. District uh, Court judge here in Washington on Tuesday rules on at and buying Time Warner, could that affect the, some of these other deals? We don't know. And just going to Sinclair, Sinclair is a rather large owner of TV stations across the country, buying Tribune Media, not a particularly large owner of TV stations. It's just that they are in bigger markets And, you know, the deal is worth a couple, several billion dollars. That's compared to over a $100 billion for AT&T, Time Warner, and very roughly $50 billion for each for some of these other deals we're talking about. You know, that has taken on all sorts of different shapes and dimensions. You have seen some conservative, you know, media, perhaps for self-serving industry, you know, competitive reasons who are against the deal certainly have seen Many Democrats against it. Still pending after maybe about a year after it was announced at the FCC. DOJ still hasn't acted on it. And, you know, again, it's one of these deals that, right, it's, it's $4 billion of market capitalization to Facebook and Apple, to, to companies with, you know, 400 to $700 billion worth of market value is what wouldn't even be remarked on in the most specialty financial press in the world. But this deal has taken on a lot of, I think, dimensions of not so much fake news, but, you know, has media become too commoditized? Are these, you know, sharing agreements that different TV stations have where they're airing similar content? Is that kind of, you know, fooling consumers where there really isn't the, you know, competitive abundance that they might be perceived to be? Uh, And, and, you know, let me me ask you a
1: little bit more about, about that. Because so most of the, at least the work that I know of about sort of the, evolution of the news market. So that, you know, national, international news basically doing okay. There's lots of outlets, new business models going online, local, state and local news decimated, right? And does the Sinclair Tribune deal fit more into this local problem? And so then does it, I mean, is that where it really becomes something that we think about rather than just Conservatives. Most like assuredly,
3: it. most assuredly. And localism has been a, not the, but been a focus of the FCC for a very long time mm-hmm. with media ownership and other proceedings. And even a report that doesn't get a lot of notice now, but there was a you know very comprehensive report about the name change at least once about the future of the media industry and how they've gotten to where it was with, you know, vis-a-vis localism done several years ago, showing the large declines in, say, newspaper reporters and the, you know, lessening number of competitors for the highly local news. Yeah, I think it taps, you know, into that. And although we as reporters are not out to advocate any view, you know, as someone who has only ever been a journalist, has only ever wanted to be a journalist and who has friends and loved ones who are journalists, you know, it, it is kind of scary about the you know the shrinking, you know, particularly of the newspapers and and what what that's meant. So yeah, I think that feeds that feeds into it. I think the betting or the the conventional wisdom still is is that you know, this transaction will be approved. Question is how many stations will Sinclair have to sell, and also very important to this transaction: in what manner does it need to you know, divest them, and can it have an arm's length relationship between itself and these stations, or does it need to? Fully cast, the and design. there's the DC Circuit case, right? And so that, <laughs> that
2: it goes to how these stations are counted for cap purposes. So, there is that, so that that comes into play too and complicates things because you got the UHF discount, yeah. So right. which has
3: to do with <laughs> y- y- across the industry, what percentage of audience can any owner of TV stations reach? That goes right to this localism issue. And will the cap be raised? It's certainly not going to be lowered. Yeah. There was a huge fight back uh, about uh, almost 15 years ago over what that cap would be in Congress and
2: at the FCC. And we're kind of back. We're, we're back right there. Yeah, Congress raised it from 35% to 45 Or no, no. Uh, the FCC raised it from 35 to 45%, mm-hmm. I think. And then Congress brought it back to 39 yeah. I believe. Yeah. And because they wanted to at least allow Murdoch and Fox to do one deal, the deal they were right. doing. And Michael Powell at the chairman's dinner said, this year we learned that the difference between democracy and fascism is 6%. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was one of the great lines because yeah, 45 to 39. That was the difference between <laughs> democracy and fascism? And all this is being revisited, you know,
3: as we speak. And I think to the people concerned about localism, they perceive that this will have a major impact on it. And again, it's important to note this is not just about one transaction or one set of companies. And of course, the House cares about localism a lot because they want to be on the news.
2: But uh, but, see, but before we- before You better we, do your lightning round because he's yeah, about to give you the hook. I, yeah, we're, um, <laughs> just
1: one, one more thing though. Jonathan, you started to talk about how you personally feel about the state of journalism. Where is this market going? I mean, we have state capitals generally not covered now. What, But we still see publications, you know, specialized publications like Com Daily, as far as I know, doing pretty well because that's news everyone in certain certain area needs. Is that, I mean, are, are we looking more at very focused publications as opposed to general news? But just where do, you, where do you see this going?
3: Sure. And I have said this before, public panels and other venues, journalism right now, and for quite a while now, has been facing a kind of tale of two cities issue, which you rightly point out, the specialty media which we ourselves are a part of and Washington DC kind of specializes in that is has some very very healthy pockets and certainly we're you know we're fortunate that that our publication and our sphere has a lot of competition to bring things even closer to home i have studied many and and been involved in many different you know, aspects of of journalism, especially journalism, and I've never seen any area as competitive as this area. Mm-hmm. now that that's serving a particular audience and And actually, in this area, you have free and low priced and expensive. You have all sorts of different options. That is because there is an economic interest in a large industry that you know, according to some accounts for seventh or sixth of the GDP of the country. In knowing about these issues, in often fighting, you know, fights between different industries and, and concepts and companies. On the other side is the local news, where there isn't any one constituency often demanding high quality journalism and The technological change that we've seen gave a whole new realm of companies the ability to kind of siphon off a lot of the maybe monopoly or something thereabouts profits that local newspapers and were experiencing. Just to end things and to bring it back to localism, one area that's been somewhat healthy, and that's why we're talking about a deal that is Sinclair Tribune, that's why we're talking about what will the limits be on what percentage of the country any one TV station owner can reach? And that is TV. TV has been fairly healthy and radio less so, but also still a captive audience for those who are still listening to radio. The numbers, when you look at like the weekly engagement on radio, are still quite, at least according to the radio industry, are still quite high. I think that the problem there, though, from this localism perspective, is often the news has become more centralized, commoditized, and there might be a little bit less resources put into it. But in terms of the corporate profits, the advertising and whatnot, that seems relatively healthy. It's not like the Denver Post, where I started with my career a long time ago as a freelancer, uh, was just back there. That paper is, it almost cannot exist anymore. It is so small. And that is the you know only newspaper serving a Fast-growing region, a wealthy region, a diverse region with, you know, multiple millions of of people. And there are, like, 60 journalists. Uh, At that one paper alone, which used to face competition from another newspaper, there used to be three or 400 journalists.
2: One of the biggest problems for newspapers is traditionally they're delivered, you know, by hand. And in an electronic world, I mean, it's hard to compete. So, whereas at least the TV radio guys, you're sending it out by the airwaves or over a cable. So, you, you know. But I remember 10 years ago, I forget, Mark Andreessen or somebody, one of the gurus in there said, look, newspapers as a paper are going away. There'll only be a few that maybe survive because they're so big and the economics of distributing them still work. But in almost all markets, it's just going to get too expensive to actually physically deliver newspapers daily. So... It's taking a little longer than he thought. This was 10 years ago. I remember this and he said, 10 years, they'll all be gone. Well, here we are. There's still quite a few around. And I think in big cities, it's like 250,000 is like the minimum you got to have. Or I've seen that number bandied about. It's probably not exact. Mm-hmm. But when you start getting down below that, right. it just the economics just don't work to pay all these people to deliver the papers. So
3: but
1: papers it, still try to, they, they seem to try to bundle the physical paper with the digital edition. Yeah, like it's almost like you have to pay extra to not get the physical paper thrown in your yard every night.
3: <laughs> I know you. I think, and we personally talked about that, and you may have even, you know, posted on Facebook about <laughs> how you consume the Washington Post. That is true. We're fortunate that in this city there is a pretty healthy amount of journalism competition. Yeah, and this is
2: where the president's been great for the Washington Post, the New <laughs> York Times. Oh, you well, know, I'll put in one few others. One final plug, actually, and <laughs> uh, not so much a plug, but if you're really interested in.
3: How some of the dynamics that we're talking about play out at a national organization. And you can read my blog and just review the Showtime just had a or I think it's actually in the middle of televising a four-part documentary on how the New York Times covered the first three hundred sixty-five days of Trump. And it, you know, if you're interested in the media and what it takes to write a story, edit a story, all those other things, it's a, a very nice crash course in that, albeit at the very opposite end of the spectrum, which is where there's still a lot of demand from a very wide audience. Unfortunately, that is no longer the norm.
0: Great. So I think I'll leave it there. We'll wrap up our 2 think minimum. Thank you so much, Jonathan and David, for coming. Well, and thanks we, very much. Really appreciate it. Yes, we appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.